crest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Columbus, subject to 1074, electronic ID aware. NCJA 1014. NCJA 1014. There's no dispute that the rigors and demands of law enforcement causes above average stress on those who wear the badge to protect and serve. Sadly, each year, law enforcement officers lose their lives to suicide or lose their careers due to maladaptive coping skills. Welcome to NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. This podcast comes to you on the cusp of National Police Week. The spotlight of this very special week shines on honoring those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, losing their lives in the line of duty. But like so many events throughout our country, the COVID-19 pandemic has interrupted the in-person ceremonies in Washington, D.C. That said, there will still be some virtual displays created by the event sponsor, the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. In-person events have been postponed until the week of October 13th. On May 6th, the annual North Carolina Police Officers Memorial Service will be held in Winston-Salem. It will also be virtual, but I encourage you to watch this live streamed event. A link has been provided as part of our podcast notes for this episode. The spotlight, of course, on this annual ceremony is the same as the national to pay tribute in North Carolina to those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice by losing their lives in the line of duty. We hear of line of duty deaths through news accounts of an officer's fatal encounter with a suspect. We hear brief details of an officer affecting an arrest, an investigative encounter, or in some instances, ambush. What we don't hear about are those officers who succumb to the everyday stresses of the job itself. On this episode, we'll have a discussion on how officers can take care of their behavioral well-being. That discussion will be through the lens of Paul Phelan, Jr. Paul is a law enforcement officer and crisis and trauma counselor who aids first responders following critical incidents. He is also an instructor course developer for the North Carolina Justice Academy based on the West Campus in Edneyville. Paul, first, welcome to the Academy podcast. This topic is a tough one for most cops and quite frankly, one that has been ignored. Kirk, thank you for having me. That's exactly right. For decades, if not longer, uh, the mentality has been part of the suck it up culture um, in law enforcement. Deal with it and move on. If if not, you're weak. Uh, there has been this stigma in law enforcement and still is. The stigma is still there, even though I'm pleased to say that it's slowly dwindling. Um, associated with taking care of your mental health and your mental well-being. And that stigma says that if you get overwhelmed and you can't handle it, then you're not cut out for the job. Or part of the stigma is I don't trust mental health professionals. They're part of they're part of administration. And if I reach out for help, then they'll use that against me and I'll be part of what's called the rubber gun squad where they take my badge and gun and my career is essentially over. Well, certainly things that always play into a police officer's mind, be you male or female, number one, I think, is ego. The other, of course, is, as you alliterated to just a bit, a a tad of peer pressure. And then, of course, the eventual outcome. What will people think? So 
to help put this thing in perspective, we have to first discuss the outcomes. And while I don't want people to be equated with numbers, it's a question that has to be asked. So what do the statistics reveal on officer-related suicides? Well, unfortunately, the number has increased. And when we talk about officer-related suicides, we're incorporating not only law enforcement officers uh, who work the street or, or narcotics or those kinds of things, but we're also including corrections officers, um, detention officers, and even telecommunicators. And that number we have seen has increased. And there are a few reasons for that. And while we may never know the true number of law enforcement suicides for various reasons, in 2019, there were 228 officers um, that have committed suicide. And that is a 32% that we know of. And that is a 32% increase from 2018. And the numbers show that more American police officers have died by suicide than line of duty deaths. And the thing that's worthy of pointing out there is that there, there could be a number of factors or reason that we're seeing that increase. Um, first could be an increase in reporting them. Uh, data collection, there's no real database, uh, no real national sponsored or government sponsored database to keep this uh, kind of collection. So uh, we rely on nonprofit organizations such as the Officer Down Memorial page or Blue Help uh, to collect these data. So there could be an increase in reporting officer suicides. The plus side to that is there's a, if there's an increase in reporting them, then there's an increase in awareness. Also, another reason, excuse me, that we're seeing an increase in officer suicides or reported officer suicides is uh, an increase in stressful and horrific events matched with a decrease in support. And we could talk all day about the current environment, the current anti-law enforcement environment that is looming in our country. And that is that has significantly impacted the mental health of the law enforcement officer. And also we see a, another factor of a, a decrease in coping skills. The newer generations, millennial generations and newer generations do not experience or on a grand scale uh the coping skills that older generations have experienced. Um, and part of that reason, and I, I don't want to get off onto the the psychological effects of social media, but part of that reason is coping has uh, led the newer generations to rely more on uh, technology and social media instead of other healthy coping skills. So. Well, you said at the onset of your answer that you've seen these very unfortunate numbers increase. And I'd kind of like for you to get a little bit more specific about some of the contributing factors, because I just feel like there's going to be some some guys and gals out there who are listening and, and are going to go, well, you know, that's not really me without not really knowing it, if that makes some semblance of sense. So right. can you be specific about what you have found to be some of the contributing factors toward these increase in numbers? Yeah, so generally there there are several contributing factors or stressors uh, for law enforcement officers that would lead them to um, 
to suicide and not only suicide, but career suicide. Maybe they haven't taken their own lives, but they have gotten to a point where they have ended their career. Uh, these very similar maladaptive coping skills that we're going to talk about. Um, but the stressors involved uh, are internal stressors, uh, organizational stressors, uh, such as, you know, admin's always on my back for some reason. We just can't, you know, we can't seem to win. Uh, they don't, they don't support us, uh, or they're coming out with some ridiculous policy, or at least that's the perception. Uh, and then there's uh, stressors at home. And I could talk all day about the hypervigilance scale for uh, 10 or 12 hours a day for five, six, seven days in a row. I'm working and, and I am hypervigilant. I'm always on the lookout looking for people who are trying to hurt me or hurt other people. And my brain on that mode for 10 to 12 hours a day. And then when I get home, all I want to do is crash and be away from people. Um, and instead, what I come home to is the spouse uh, handing off the kids, telling me about their day and how horrible it was and how stressful it was. And all I want to do is just sit there and relax and get away. So there's there's those types of stressors. Um, there's isolationism uh, that we you know we see officers unintentionally isolating themselves from the rest of the world. On their days off, they do nothing but hang out with cops and talk about cop stories, um, or they work off duty, or they have this extra training. Um, and to be honest with you, I was a living example of that at some point in my career. So um, we can kind of get into that. Uh, Kirk, I'm not sure if you want to talk about uh, some of those coping skills and, and some of the things, the, the maladaptive coping skills now, or if that's going to be a follow-up question. Yeah, let's let's kind of head in that direction. I think that's, this is a great place to kind of make that turn because I don't want us to sit here and focus on suicides, which yeah. is a tad bit gruesome. But <laughs> because, as you mentioned earlier, that's not always the outcome resulting from these misaligned coping skills. So what are some of the other things that you are seeing? Uh, yeah, so as I said, we're not only seeing officers lose their lives, uh, but we're seeing them lose their careers because of how they are coping. Um, or not coping uh, with the stressors associated with their career. And some of those coping skills include uh, excessive alcohol or substance abuse, uh, promiscuous relationships on and off duty, um, and isolationism. As I, as I said a moment ago, uh, we spend our time off with other officers and we don't really have friends outside of the law enforcement realm. Um, and the ones we do, we feel like they don't really understand us, so we just kind of shy away from them a little bit. Uh, and then there's withdrawal from our families. Those are just kind of a culmination of what we're seeing as far as how officers are, are coping or not coping uh, with the stressors in their life. Okay, so obviously you've confirmed for us the fact that officers are losing lives and careers. So let's turn our discussion toward how we go about stopping these behavioral patterns. And I highly suspect doing so begins with identification. So two of the most likely places will be home and work, as you said. So if I'm a coworker and I begin to suspect that something is amiss, what am I looking for? What are some of the signs of an officer in the beginning stages of a mental health crisis? 
Well, and this is a, a piece of the of the subject that we could spend all day talking to, about as well. Um, but the biggest adversary in law enforcement mental health is this thing that we call cumulative stress. Um, cumulative stress is the buildup of all the, for lack of a better word, stuff uh, that we deal with. All the organizational stressors that I mentioned earlier, all the external stressors, uh, media stressors, um, and job-related stressors. Uh, and when it builds up over time and it isn't dealt with, there could be destructive consequences like the ones we mentioned a few minutes ago. But what makes cumulative stress so dangerous is it creeps up on us. We don't see it. We don't feel it. We we don't have this uh, click. Go, oh, man, I'm stressed. I feel stressed. Um, it creeps up on us almost like the frog in a pot of water. Uh, analogy. And it isn't something we can readily see in ourselves. It isn't something that we are, for the most part, readily able to admit and say, okay, let me deal with that. Uh, it's not one of those, voila, I suddenly wake up one day and realize that I'm dealing with cumulative stress. So some of the things that you can see uh, as a family member or as a partner um, is there isolationism? And, and not only the type of isolationism I was talking about a moment ago, where all, all we do is hang out with cops um, or other first responders, but is there isolationism in general? Are they not interacting with, with their coworkers or their family members like they usually do? Have they just kind of disengaged and shut off where usually when I get home and play with the kids for uh, 30 minutes to an hour. Now I just come home and, and go in the room and be my, my by myself. Uh, so is there a behavioral change in that? Uh, or on duty, uh, as you said, if you are a co-worker, you know, usually we go um, check out at, at meal break together, but he hasn't eaten with me for some reason in a week or two. Um, another question, and I mentioned it a second ago, is if there withdrawal from family and friends. Uh, usually maybe the officers engage with their family. They sit down and listen to their spouse and talk about their day, uh, how things went, what's going on in Johnny or Susie's life, the kids. Uh, but they withdraw from that. Um, they also withdraw from their friends. Uh, don't want to go to parties. Don't want to go to dinners with friends, uh, those kinds of things. Another thing we can see, Kirk, is a constant negativity, and this is a big trap in law enforcement, um, constant negativity or reduced job satisfaction. Well, this is BS because so-and-so got a new laptop and I didn't, or so-and-so got a new car and it was my turn. I was supposed finding the smallest, most insignificant things to be negative about. And the danger of that is we bring that home. And when we find things that we're not satisfied about the job and we let that spill over into our personal lives, well, I sure wish she would dress better. I wish she would do these things. She isn't this person. Um, I wish I had a new truck, a new house. Just continued dissatisfaction. Uh, and then there's constant physical exhaustion. Always tired, always fatigued, even on duty, off duty, days off. You've gotten your seven, eight, nine hours of sleep, uh, and that's not working for you. It's, um, constant exhaustion. Uh, poor or neglecting hygiene. 
this is the officer uh, when you're looking for behavioral change. This is the officer that's usually squared away, uniforms pressed and ironed and neat and tight, shoes are shined, and now all of a sudden, wrinkly pants, uh, wrinkly uniform, just things are not uh, hygiene-wise. He hadn't shaved in a few weeks, so are they neglecting their hygiene? Uh, and Kirk, when you talk about uh, co-workers and some things that they can see more specifically is, is there a loss of empathy or compassion? Uh, maybe you roll up on that hard call where a, lo a loved one has been lost or or some other tragic event for, for Joe Citizen, and there's just no empathy or compassion for that person. Now, we all experience that. We all see um, that on some sort of level uh, is this heightened? Is there just absolutely in it, no ability to express any kind of empathy or compassion? We're just kind of going through the motions, handling that call and going to the next one. And then two more things, uh, recurrent sadness or depression in their life. Um, what are they sad about? What are they depressed about? Uh, and finally, and this one's a big one, uh, irritability on calls. Um, they're just, you know, on that call for service and they're unusually irritable for whatever reason. And that leads into, is there an increase in citizen complaints? And so while we could talk about that topic alone all day, uh, those are the primary um, and, and, and probably the most significant indicators that we can see when an officer is dealing um, with cumulative stress and subsequently uh, uh, on the verge of a mental health crisis. Okay, so that obviously is, is a big help, and I hope folks were taking notes on that because, like you said, I, I think as law enforcement officers, we do kind of get into that rudimentary behavior where we take a call for service, we deal with it, we check out, and then we go do the next one. And, and I think sometimes in behaviors with people, it's kind of that same way. We just checked on at 0600. We're not going to check off until 1800. And that interaction throughout the day becomes so static sometimes and so status quo that we don't notice those things. So I think just just great, great ideas and, and great lights that you have shined out there for us to be looking for. So you've helped us see some of those signs. Let's head toward the next step in the process. I once heard a police chief say, police work isn't pretty sometimes. And over my career, I found that to be very true. So let's talk about these. Cops see and hear a lot of stuff that that chief described as not pretty. They're traffic accident fatalities, child abuse or deaths, um, officer-involved shooting, just to name a few. We commonly refer to these in the law enforcement business as critical incidents. So to get right to the the meat of the question, what's being done to help officers in the aftermath of some of the things that they see and or are directly involved in? Well, that's a great question. And just to hit briefly on cumulative stress for a second there, the culture of law enforcement kind of, uh, and you hit on it, we check on, we go to call to call to call and we check off. And when we deal with critical incidents, uh, a lot of times we we recognize that was a stressful call, but we don't have time and we'll deal with it later. And then we go to another one and man, it's a man, what a stressful day, but we don't have time. We'll deal with it later and later never comes. And that's how the cumulative stress begins to build. Uh, and and that's worthy of mentioning when we talk about critical incidents. 
Um, because when it comes to the aftermath of critical incidents, it's very, very important for an agency to have or host, number one, and number two, encourage their officers to attend a critical incident stress debrief. And those generally take place generally, depending on the the incident and all the circumstances, between 48 to 72 hours after the event. And some of the examples that you may want to consider a critical incident stress debrief is, is prolonged incidents, uh, such as disasters. Um, one example of that is uh, this past summer when we had the riots, uh, we did some debriefs with Asheville Police Department. Uh, not that there was anything absolutely no one incident was critical. It's just the fact that they had three to four days of riots and, and civil unrest, um, and they were just exhausted all the way around. Uh, so we did a critical incident stress debrief just because of that, for lack of a better word, that atmosphere change of being on call and coming in and changing the hours and, and four days of very tumultuous times. Um, so that's an example of when you may want to consider do, uh, doing a critical incident stress debrief. Another one may be mass casualty incidents, uh, where we see a lot of death and destruction, a lot of unnatural death. Um, and then obviously, if there's an officer involved shooting, um, whether you know there was a a casualty involved in that or not, one way or the other, the shooting in and of itself is traumatizing. So, and of course, that leads into any time there's a line of duty death, you want to do a critical incident stress debrief for the entire agency, uh, not just those who were involved. And for those of you who are listening and maybe aren't familiar with what a critical incident stress debrief is, um, we see this all the time. We, you know, officers come in because they feel like that their chief or their lieutenant or or some other supreme high commander forces them to be there or ties their hands to be there um, and, and they don't want to be there. And so they sit in the back or they have their hands crossed or their arms crossed and they're very apprehensive about the process. So hopefully I can kind of downgrade that a little bit and, and relieve some of that apprehension. Um, these debriefings are not kumbaya, hold hands around the campfire, uh, in, in warm and fuzzy type deals. The, they are they allow officers to verbalize their point of view during the incident and put pieces together in their mind as to what happened. And studies have found that in any kind of critical incident, if I know, quote, the rest of the story, that helps me process mentally and cope with and deal with mentally what has taken place and and it helps my own mental health, my own well-being. Uh, and for uh, an example of that is let's assume that Kirk is the dispatcher and he dispatches to call um, and I get there as an officer and there's a shooting. Um, when we do that critical incident stress debrief, Kirk, the dispatcher, is a little distressed in his mind because he didn't know what happened and maybe he feels a little responsible for sending us the way he did. But once the rest of the story, once I give my point of view, this is what happened when I got there, Kirk can, in his mind, go, oh, thank God, I didn't know that. And so some of that stress relieved in his mind, uh, it, it, stress in his mind can be relieved based on that. Um, 
so mentally it helps give us a piece when we know, quote, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Mm -hmm. um, also, when we do these critical incident stress debriefings, we use peers with similar backgrounds um, to offer advice, encouragement, and support. We don't use people who cannot empathize and cannot relate to those officers. You know, we want officers and other first responders who have been involved in shootings, if it's a shooting uh, type debriefing, or officers who have been involved in mass casualty incidents, if that's the case. Uh, also, one last thing with these debriefings, uh, anyone desiring or needing longer term support and help, that is offered there. We don't all, you know, we don't get that there. We don't embarrass anyone. We don't, um, we don't try to conjure out emotions and deal with that and have counseling sessions there at those debriefings. But we do want officers to uh, know, hey, we have people here. You can talk to them confidentially here or you can connect with them, um, follow up with you, whatever the case may be. So aside, and there's two final things uh, on this, aside from critical incident stress debriefings, when we talk about those types of things, we have in the last 10 to 15 years taken or began to take a proactive approach when it comes to officer mental health. And there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, <clears throat> Henderson County Sheriff's Office here in North Carolina uh, that is a place that I volunteer the crisis and trauma counselor um, and they have a good model to follow uh, they have embedded counselors uh, that work that yes they work with countywide employees but they are embedded with the sheriff's office and with EMT folks in which they do FTO check-ins so when when Kirk is a brand new police officer or deputy sheriff uh, in part of his FTO process is to come see one of us. And all we do there is say, hey, you know, we, we do an, an ACE kind of thing where, you know, an adverse childhood experience kind of give you some awareness tips. We do ride alongs with the officers. And that's regardless of the division. You can be patrol, the jail, records division, civilian, uh, telecommunicator, it doesn't matter. You're going to do an FTO check-in with us. We do yearly check-ins twice a year. Hey, how are things going? How are you coping? Uh, any changes? Um, and we do ride-along. And the idea here is if we can reach officers early and provide them with awareness and tools early in their career, then we will be able to prevent some of the things that we talked about earlier. And finally, I'd say take a take advantage of your department's peer support program. They're trained to detect and most importantly, listen uh, to their peers. And they're just like counselors. They are bound to keep things confidential. Absent harm from self or harming others, they absolutely will keep things confidential. Well, I, there are so many valuable pieces to the words that you just said. And, and one of the ones that kind of sticks out in my mind just a bit is that we include the broader agency and just not those who were directly involved. You know, I've, I've had a personal experience working for an agency where there was an officer involved shooting. I was only the public information guy. I was only the, the guy who's supposed to gather up all this information, but it was one of those where the shooting happened just before midnight, mm -hmm. called to the scene, stayed mm -hmm. up all night long dealing yeah. with different stuff. And then let's uh, assemble the media. Let's, let's go over and, and meet with them, do the standard announcement, answer the questions and holy cow. 
I mean, right. by the time that thing was over, I could feel the tension in my eye. It, right. it was that intense. So I think what you bring to the table is to say, you know, it's not just about those who are directly involved. You, you got to look at this thing a little bit broader. And we're very hopeful that in a future podcast, we're also going to be able to to bring in some guys who are peer counselors. As you said, when we when you bring in the team, you want people who have been there, done that, and you want to be able to look at people eye to eye. But I think right. there's, there's a, some models out there where guys who are actually working in the same agency can do yes. some of the same check-ins that you're talking about. And, and we're very anxious to get that one assembled and get it off the table. So to kind of bring us back full circle, obviously you are trained to help officers in these critical incident matters that you just talked about. So I guess it's safe to assume that there are a lot more Paul Phelan's throughout North Carolina. <laughs> and, and you touched on a part of this earlier, but let's let's get specific about what's happening at the Justice Academy and what the Academy is doing to helping this mission to offset the law enforcement mental health crisis and some of these critical incident involvements that you've talked about. Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, the idea is if you can reach officers while they are in training, preferably at the academy level, um, if you can reach them with awareness at that point, and awareness is half the battle. Uh, I, I remember going to school for my counseling degree and getting involved uh, with peer support and, and, and setting off on this journey in my life. And I learning these things and I'm sitting there going, man, if only I would have known these things early in my law enforcement career, what decisions would I have made differently? I haven't had a bad career, but there I look back and, and there are things that I go, wow, I, I wish I would have decided on this differently or done this differently. Uh, so the idea is to reach them while they're young, while they're in the academy, in training. Um, and the problem is, and this is not just North Carolina. This is nationwide. We kind of insert that into a, a real quick block and we expect them to, yeah, okay, that you need to know this. Let's move on to something else. And then we pile on uh, other important, very important things that they need to know, how to shoot, how to fight, the law, all these things. And that piece is gone. So uh, we know that the best chance for reaching an officer is giving them that advantage early in their career in the academy. With that said, the academy is working to revisit and revise that piece of the BLET curriculum um, to expound on officer awareness of mental health early on and on a wider scale, some of the things that we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Um, Susan Gillis, who is at the Salemburg campus, is active with NC LEAP, which is short for North Carolina Law Enforcement Assistance Program. I'm active with the Western Carolina Peer Support Network, um, and we're also in the process of training other instructors uh, in critical incident stress management as well. Um, Susan teaches a class on critical incident stress management. Now, that class doesn't necessarily certify you um, or put you through the, the training that you need to be in peer support or, or teach peer support, but it, it is the material that we need to be aware of what is going on in our brain when we are dealing with this law enforcement culture. Um, and aside from that, um, I have developed and will be presenting an online webinar throughout the year uh, on self-care for first responders. 
And in that webinar, I discuss a little bit more in detail about what we've talked about today, uh, as well as some tips on how to manage that stress, how to build resiliency, which is a big key in law enforcement, and how to be proactive in mental wellness. We talk about mental or mental health or emotional hygiene uh, and that concept, uh, and as I said, resiliency and also career success, um, to say the least. So that's where we're at at the Academy. Uh, I can say from talking to um, our chain of command, our deputy directors and our director, we are definitely on board uh, with ending the stigma uh, that is there and and doing what we can at the academy level to help uh, with the behavioral health of, of law enforcement. Well, and, you know, here we go tooting our own horn for just a minute, but it just goes to continually prove that the academy is not sitting still and is getting out there on the, the cutting edge of what law enforcement officers in the state of North Carolina truly need. And, and I, again, just think that is absolutely awesome news. But as we kind of bring this thing to a close, and I feel like I could sit here with you all afternoon and talk about it, um, so much good information that came out of this, but I'm going to have to kind of take us back to the beginning as we slowly wind things down, just to kind of put things in perspective. In 2019, there were 132 line of duty deaths. That same year, 228 officers took their own lives, and countless others have lost their careers in the process of trying to apply unqualified coping skills. So both can be accounted for due to the rigors and stress and all the things that Paul has talked about with a career in law enforcement. Paul Phelan is a cop, a counselor, and an instructor course developer for the North Carolina Justice Academy based on the Western campus in Edneyville. Paul, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with our listeners and equally important, the training that you are doing in an effort to reduce the number of lives and careers lost in the state of North Carolina. Kirk, I want to thank you so much for having me uh, and for allowing me to speak on this. This is definitely a, a passion of mine, a calling of mine. Um, and I just want to encourage other officers uh, and I say other officers because I am still sworn, I am still active in law enforcement. Uh, I would encourage you to forget the stigma uh, and never give up. Never fight alone. You don't have to. We have this never give up, stay in the fight mentality when it comes to uh, combat, when it comes to battles, when it comes to shooting. Um, I encourage you to take that same never give up never fight alone mentality when it comes to dealing with your own mental health. Um, you can reach out to me on a non-government non email. Uh, just send me an email and say, hey, can you call me or email me here or whatever? I don't care. Um, or reach out to someone. Um, even if you think, maybe you're not sure, but you think you may be dealing with some of the things that we mentioned today, reach out. Use the same resiliency that you use on the street when it comes to your family and your own mental health. Never give up, refuse to give up, and press on. Kurt, thank you so much. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you 
And remember, folks, the first step in the process is to do something. So to our listeners, please be vigilant to the signs of those who may be either in the beginning stages or at a full-blown mental health crisis. You can be the difference makers. And while you may not be qualified to intervene, there are plenty of folks who are just like Paul Phelan. But as I said, it begins with involvement. Until next time, please stay safe. The next time you're on one of our campuses, please stop by the North Carolina Justice Academy bookstore. There you can find books, t-shirts, collectible coins, and much more.